we saw our families just like work themselves till they die. We never really saw them access pleasure. And a lot of them, and this isn't just for marginalized communities, like a lot of us don't even know if our grandmothers or great grandmothers even access pleasure themselves. But when it comes to folks at the intersection of race and gender, they also have to deal with racism at the end of the day as well. And so with that, you have just that violence that that affects them to the point like who wants to even access pleasure at that point or are you even able to access joy? You're listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we help people get smarter about culture by talking to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. In this episode, we speak to Irma Garcia, a Texas-certified sex educator and founder of Dirty South Sex Ed, a social media platform that shares unbiased, inclusive sexual health information to revolutionize wellness and prioritize pleasure among marginalized people in the Deep South. In our conversation, Irma talks about her journey into human sexuality, why it's important for BIPOC and LGBTQ communities to have access to medically accurate sex information, and how removing the taboo of sex empowers all of us. Hosting this conversation is Avi Schaefer, Creative Director at Sanders Wingo. Now, here's Avi. So Irma, tell me a little bit about you, your background, where you're from, what you do, all those cool things. First off, thank you for having me. Before I go into my academic and professional background, I always start off by talking about where I come from because my lived experiences are my lens that has taught me more than what any academic theory ever has. It also allows people to understand where my values and beliefs are rooted in, which are at the intersection of race, gender, and class. I was born and raised in Houston, Texas. Insert Megan and Beyonce plug. <laughs> was raised in a poor mixed status, mixed race, religious household, and with an incarcerated parent. So all of that means that half of my family was raised in the States and the other half was not. We lived in the hood, felt the impact of the criminal justice system as children and we're raised in evangelical Christianity because we were also in the Bible Belt. So all of that combined created many rifts within our home as well as creating who I am today. So that's mainly where I come from. (laughs) What do you do and how is that different than what most people that have your title do? So I am currently the client services manager and sexual health educator at James Q Process, which is a nonprofit based in Texas that helps young people access abortion, abortion care and birth control and sex and information. Currently at the moment, the abortion access care is what is mostly at risk with everything happening at the Supreme Court. But the way to kind of go back to how all of that, to where I am today with that, I first majored in journalism and minored in women's and gender studies at the University of Texas at Austin. And that academic background led me to want to focus on sexual health and gender issues after I graduated. So my first 
real job after college was being a counselor at a local abortion clinic. And from there, I became a birth doula. And from there, I got hired at Jane's Due Process, which is where I am now. And simultaneously went back to school to become certified to teach sex ed. And fast forward, I created Dirty South Sex Ed on Instagram, which ended up blowing up for good reason. It also let me know that people were actually craving this information and it was absolutely needed. Whereas in my mind, I originally was doing it from a creative perspective of just wanting to disperse sex ed information in a fun, easy way to understand. And it wasn't until later that people were asking me for workshops and more information and speaking at panels and all of that for both abortion information, reproductive rights information, reproductive justice information, as well as sex ed information. So essentially, I started focusing on wanting to democratize sexual health info to essentially just cultivate a sex positive culture within marginalized communities. That's amazing. You have a lot going on. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about what was the inspiration for you behind starting that career? And what were some of the major roadblocks or things that you just felt like maybe got in the way or maybe pushed you around that? Since I was a child, I have always disliked being told I couldn't do something or behave a certain way because of my gender. So I would say originally, it's always going to be where you come from, right? Your your childhood. And that is where everything began, at least for me, but for most people, it's usually where everything begins. Being able to go to college and actually study something that... I've always had an interest in was essentially like what led me to actually want to make it a career. I actually did not know that this is what I wanted to do until I went to school and explored many different paths. I originally wanted to like be a teacher, be this, be that. And it wasn't until I got to UT that I started having all of these classes that dealt with women and gender studies and sexual health and reproductive rights, reproductive justice, all of that. And it was all coming together in my head and in my soul in regards to how I understood my lived experiences. Everything was making sense like, oh, the things that I went through as a kid and as a teenager, these are the reasons why all of these concepts exist, all of these systems exist. At that time, I didn't have the language to put on my experiences, and now I did. And I wanted to be able to give that to the communities that I that raised me, that helped me get to where I was at that time and where I am now. So I would also say that in regards to roadblocks, it was also mainly my family because it was a very religious household and talking about abortion and talking about sex is essentially not Christian. (laughs) Um, I would say I have always been a big shock to my family in all the ways, like from who I am, how I act, how I speak, how I behave, how I dress, everything. They have just always been surprised in every single phase of my life. They're just like, at this point, nothing surprises 
anymore. <laughs> but originally, when I told them that this is essentially what I wanted to do, I was going back to school for sex ed and all of that. They were just like, why is this something that interests you so much? I explained it to them and they understood for the most part. But at the end of the day, a lot of people will stick to their beliefs, which everyone has the right to do. And our understanding now with the religious people in my community are like, you know, you have your beliefs, I have mine, you know, just stay out of each other's way. But essentially, that would be the biggest roadblock. After that, it was all like, I'm doing it. (laughs) I know that you kind of mentioned the family was a little bit, but it's almost like religion is a roadblock to sex education. Oh, 100%. That was essentially the foundation. But I would say because coming from a place where community is everything and the people in your life are everything, it can create some mental, a, a mental roadblock because you want to make them proud. You want them to be proud of you. You want them to be happy for what you do. And essentially, I still didn't care if they were not approving or not, but it would have been nice. And so at this point, that was years ago, but at this point, it became something to me that I was like, okay, that is something that I probably will never get from those specific people. But I know this information is needed in our communities, regardless, for that specific reason. Like I am the lived experience of why we need this info. (laughs) Speaking of communities, you have a lovely community going on Instagram that follows you. What's your goal? What's your hope? What's the pie in the sky of what you want to achieve through your Instagram account, Dirty South Sex Ed? My goal is to first off, as I said earlier, democratizing the information, just making it understandable because medical literacy is something that a lot of people in marginalized communities do not have. Something as simple as how to make a doctor's appointment can be challenging for some. And moving more into the process, like understanding insurance and understanding what the doctor's telling you, understanding what questions to ask when you go to the doctor, understanding your body, which most of us who probably even folks who are not in marginalized communities would not even know a lot about their bodies or what questions to ask at the doctor's office. So this, this isn't something that just affects communities of color. It affects a lot of people, but mostly communities where language is a barrier, where immigration status is a barrier, education levels. A lot of people in marginalized communities have maybe a third grade reading level when they're in like eighth grade or even lower if they're in high school and stuff like that. As someone who works with teens to help them get their abortions and birth control, I see it all the time. I see it every day where even just making a doctor's appointment is is very difficult for them. So I walk them through all of that. And kind of going into the sex ed part, when we talk about bodies, it's very uncomfortable for maybe 99.9% of the people that I counsel. So just the simple information of like how your body works is already like, it causes so much discomfort. So you can only imagine like going to the doctor will probably be even a lot more uncomfortable. So people avoid it and not go to the doctor and end up getting their information from their friends, from the internet, from social media. And 
most of the time, those places, especially the internet, tends to be just a dark rabbit hole. Yes, you can get accurate information from the internet, but there's also a con to that. If you don't really know how to discern from that information and be wise on what you're reading, who knows what you're getting. First and foremost, to make it understandable, to make it as easy to get, and then cultivate a culture of wellness and pleasure, which is something that, again, keep going back to marginalized communities, to Black and brown folks, because that's something that most of us do not get to access because we're working every day. We saw our families just like work themselves till they die. We never really saw them access pleasure. And a lot of them, and this isn't just for marginalized communities, like a lot of us don't even know if our grandmothers or great grandmothers even access pleasure themselves. But when it comes to folks at the intersection of race and gender, they also have to deal with racism at the end of the day as well. And so with that, you have just that violence that that affects them to the point like who wants to even access pleasure at that point or are you even able to access joy? For example, the events that have been happening these last couple of months with the shootings, a lot of folks have a practices of wanting to cultivate joy for communities of color. But at the end of the day, we can't even experience joy because we're mostly experiencing pain and violence from white supremacy and many other institutionalized forms of violence. And so at the end of the day, we're just tired and like, what is pleasure anymore, right? And so being able to give people this information of just as simply as how your body works and how you can tap into these little pockets of pleasure for when you do feel like you're able to is just an act of self-care, an act of protest. It's just being able to act against what, yeah, what institutionalized systems of racism have against us. So, yeah. That's amazing. And again, another bit of irony because pleasure is so healthy that when we're in those states of sadness and fear and fatigue a little pleasure kind of goes a long way right like that could be a nice nice little reprieve from some of the things that we've got that led me to one thing so totally understand the marginalized component of it why do you focus on south you know like on your account you say marginalized people in the deep south where did the south component of it come from so geographical context is always an important factor when talking about oppression, marginalization, all of that. For example, folks who are in the Bible Belt, which is where I'm from, and that is why is the lens that I use. I can't necessarily speak on a platform and speak for everyone, mainly number one, that's why. And number two is mostly because the South is a heavily conservative region where bodily autonomy is policed so much to the point that abortion restrictions are the highest down here. And as we have been able to see with the six-week abortion ban in Texas and the current Mississippi case at the Supreme Court that we should hear on any day now. And that just goes to show like the South is where a lot of things get tested on. 
and the rest of the country kind of like takes it on. But these communities specifically, mainly because I come from here. And so I am able to, to use the lens of where I'm from. And then also because, like I said earlier, the intersection of racism and patriarchal violence is mainly <laughs> in the South. And you have patriarchal violence, mainly also because of religion. Christianity, for the most part, because this region is mainly Christian, that's why I say that, it's a very heavily patriarchal religion. And so at that point, you have many people who identify as women in these states of not understanding their bodies, of not being able to tap into pleasure, not being able to talk about sex or any of that. Whereas the boys are able to maybe experience a lot more things than the girls were not able to because of respectability politics, even more so for folks who are black and brown, respectability politics is everything because we don't have race to help us. So we have to be as respectable as possible for white people to respect us. And so at that point, you have people in the Bible Belt fighting for their lives every day against racism, against misogyny, patriarchal violence, capitalism, classism, like all of these different things. Other places in the country, not to say this happens everywhere, don't necessarily have those components to fight against every single day as much as we do. Some of the poorest regions are in the South. And so that's where you get that classism and capitalistic factor. And yeah, that's essentially why. <laughs> it's so crazy too, because it's like, we all know we have some very core problems that exist in the country, in the world, for sure in Texas, but we've got those core things. And then when you get into certain parts there's more weight on top of that. And it's not like it's an individual sum of its parts. It's like each time you put one more component on it, it gets exponentially heavier and heavier. And the need is so much more. So, you know. It's a nuanced topic. It's so complex. Sex ed is not as simple as a lot of people would think it would be. It's very important to teach it and talk about it from, from an intersectional point of view. Because again, if we are going to talk about the communities who are able to access sex ed, those are usually communities who don't need to go to public school because private schools are able to create their own curriculums and all of them. And they are able to teach sex ed if they want to, because it's essentially up to them. So there's that factor where, again, that's connected to capitalism and classism. For example, in Austin, Austin has the quote-unquote best sex ed curriculum in the whole state what is austin austin is the one blue dot of the entire state of texas and austin is also more well off than other places in texas so if, if you are able to connect the dots of all of these things you are able to see how these institutions intersect to create the the, the system that we're in essentially the way our lived experiences come out of that it's so interesting that it's like sex ed, these are our bodies, here's the parts, here's the science, here you go. And it's a cultural play as much as it is a scientific play, it seems like, right? Like, I mean, there's so much more involved. Yeah, everyone would benefit, honestly. Um, I can't remember which politician it was. Uh, I think it was a Kansas representative who was talking not so long ago about birth control being abortion methods as well. I don't know if you saw that. 
where he was talking about banning birth control, the birth control pill as well, because it's essentially abortion also. And we were all like, this is why we need like that. <laughs> because you too do not know how this works. <laughs> and you technically are supposed to be educated. <laughs> Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. This helps boost the show's visibility and helps others find and enjoy the podcast too. Thanks for listening. Now back to the interview. Social media. Do you feel like it makes it easier to discuss some of these topics? Has that been a vessel or a facility to be able to have a broader reach or a louder voice? Absolutely, 100%. Mainly because most people are on social media. So being able to reach the absolute most of the population is there and it's free (laughs) for now. So being able to create something that most people can access, maybe some people can't go to college, but they have a phone and they have Instagram or TikTok. Again, that's free. They can access it. There's the information. Maybe not a lot of people are able to go to workshops and stuff like that, or know um, that they can go to clinics and stuff like that to get this information. So again, social media kind of is at the intersection of accessibility. So I'm able to reach folks who speak Spanish because I speak Spanish too. And I can also reach folks from all parts of the world. I work with a lot of people in Latin America and South America and the Caribbean. So being able to have that reach while being in my apartment is incredible. Social media has definitely helped a lot in spreading this information. Also, it seems like there's a safe space, right? Like if you post something, someone who might be very uncomfortable talking to their mom or dad about something can get involved in a conversation. And that leads me to the next question, which is why is talking about sex so important? Essentially, we are all sexual beings. That's just a scientific fact. We we were born sexual beings. That is like the first component of like understanding your body. First, you have to understand who you are. And then from there, it also is important to understand how your body works so that when something happens to you, when you are experiencing something physiologically, you're able to communicate that to whoever you're talking to, your parents, because essentially parents are a child's first sex educator. A parent is essentially where a child will learn if sex is good or bad, if it's positive, negative, if it's neutral, whatever. The tone is set by caretakers and parents. And then from what they and from what children learn there is essentially taken with them to their communities at school, whenever they go to the doctor with their friends. And understanding who you are essentially as a person, it's also something that's biological and also something that deals with our mental health. So a lot of people never realize that sex is intersecting with our mental health. And if we are going through something like depression, anxiety, or any of that, that affects how we are behaving as well sexually. And it's important to understand having that language can also help people with experiences of violence and abuse. So if a child was told at one point that sex was bad and was abused or assaulted or anything bad happened to them, they're not going to be able to express that to their parents or caregivers because they were already told that what they experienced was bad, even if they did not consent. 
So there's more layers to that conversation as well. Everything in this conversation is always full of layers. Um, <laughs> so um, that's essentially just like the surface level answer that is connected to who we are as humans. So if it's so connected, why is it so taboo? And what stage of the peaks and valleys are we at right now with it being taboo? So we are now in a time where misogyny and patriarchy is identifiable and people have identified it. Then you have some that are just like in their own world. (laughs) And sexuality is more embraced by the majority. But it's important to note that women's sexuality has always been shut down and seen as evil. History points to misogyny's birthday dating back to around like 8th century BC. That is a long time ago. (laughs) And now here we are thousands and thousands of years later still dealing with this. Of course, in a different capacity, but nonetheless, misogyny, slut shaming, sexual shaming, rape culture, all of that is still very much present. It's only taken a different form. And it's important to be able to identify all of those things because it has proven harmful, oppressive, and dangerous. From those oppressions, people create ideologies that then affect whole communities, which again kind of leads us back to why tailoring this information for two specific communities is very important. Racialized communities deal with specific oppressions that their sexuality is tied even more so. So for example, for Black women, sexuality then and there has been so hypersexualized and so much experimentation has happened that talking about sex ed there has to be in a specific context. And then even with non-Black Hispanic women, specifically Indigenous women, more experimentation has happened with them as well when it comes to birth control and all of that. So all of these taboos on sex also do have reasons. Like a lot of our communities do not trust the government because they experimented on us with the birth control pill, with many sterilization experiments and all of these things. And so sex ed, regardless, even if it's taboo, it's also still has a lot of these other reasons as to why a lot of people won't talk about it. There's another stigma around sex being like a young person's game, right? How important is sex as you get older? Age-appropriate sex ed is absolutely a thing. So as young as maybe five years old, sex ed begins there, right? With learning about the names of our body parts are and all of that. And then people go through puberty, talking about everything there. And then specifically with young women in their teenage years, research shows that young girls, specifically even more so girls of color, experience more abuse than protection because of hypersexualization and misogyny and toxic masculinity. Discussing sex ed even more so at those stages is important to be able to give them the language on how to consent and how to talk about pleasure if they do consent and all of that. And then as you get into adulthood, you also have to understand that your body is still changing at that time. Even as you get into your 30s and 40s, I'm in my 30s. So like even then, like I also am still learning about my body and all of that and always telling people in our workshops and my and, and the young people in a James Dew process, like your body is not going to stop changing and it's probably going to just keep changing until you die. And so it's important to understand where you are at now so that you can give it what it needs now. 
but it's also important to understand that the only constant is change. And so you can't expect, for example, to have the same sex drive that you had when you were a teenager or when you were in college and have that same sex drive when you're in your mid thirties or forties or fifties. You absolutely can have a healthy sex life, but it's going to look different and there's nothing wrong with that. We're just going to have to shift things. I feel like there's this funny joke that traditional sex education tells us like, hey, when you get to this certain age in your teens, you're going to hit puberty, but you'll be okay. Really, what they should be saying is around 13, your body's going to go on a roller coaster until you're about dead. (laughs) Period. Exactly. (laughs) It's so bizarre. In terms of race and ethnicity and identity, how do you identify? I identify as a mixed race queer woman of color from the South. (laughs) It's just just pretty straightforward, which also helps me give people that lens of where I'm coming from without having to give them the whole spiel of everything we talked about today, (laughs) because it can be a lot. Who you are and how you identify, how does that shape your work? It allows the lens that I use to be relatable to the young people that I serve, to the adults that I help. For example, if a white woman were to be leading a sex ed class to a group of racialized black and brown people, at this point, a lot of them will be asking questions like, but you haven't gone through that. So how would you know? Versus I come from a mixed race background, a mixed cultured background where I can tell people like, okay, so this is what I've gone through, which I know that you've gone through too, or they will tell me the same thing too. Also, one time I have had a young person tell me like, no, but you don't understand, blah, blah, blah. And I was able to tell, I do understand. That simple line allowed that person to bring down their wall and be more vulnerable to let me know that she was going through a hard time at home or going through abuse or going through whatever. And I was able to give her the tools and information she needed in order to have a healthy sex life, be able to get her abortion, be able to get the resources that that she needed. And so being able to relate to the people that I serve is of the utmost importance to me so that I'm able to serve them as well as possible. And if I don't relate to them, I give them what I can, but I also kind of send them to where they need to be. So if they are going through a specific lived experience that I know a colleague has gone through, that's the person, that's the best person to serve them. And that's where I send them to. So essentially knowing that foundation and using a specific lens is so important when it comes to social justice work, to restorative justice work, to all of this type of work that leads to liberation, to kind of be able to give people exactly what they need. Speaking of having those conversations. What's your favorite social platform to spread your work? And why is it your favorite? Currently, Instagram, just because I'm still getting the hang of TikTok. Um, (laughs) I love TikTok. I I love being on there to watch other people create stuff. But I believe mainly because currently a lot of my work is with abortion access. So my effort is going to that versus sex sex education specifically. But once we kind of get over this hill, I hope it's just a hill, but I doubt it. I'm going to try to 
experiment with TikTok a little more. But for the moment, Instagram is my favorite. <laughs> Do you remember like the moment when you realized the impact that you were having on people and how many people were paying attention to you and following you? And like, what does that feel like? How does it feel to be like all of a sudden be like, oh, I'm at a thousand. Whoa, I'm at five. I'm at 16,000 followers. That's a lot. Yeah. I think it first hit me when I hit 10K because that's essentially at that time, this was like two years ago, I think 10K was kind of like a big deal. And I was definitely still in shock. And I think I still am because it's one of those things of like, people want to hear me talk about these things or want to read my work or see my work. So there's just that layer of like, OMG, people like me. And then, <laughs> um, and then the other side was more of, okay, I'm glad that this is being received well. I'm glad people are letting me know that this is what they like and this is what they want and this is what they need. And yeah, I'm absolutely going to give it to y'all because that's why I started it anyway. I just didn't expect it to blow up so fast in my head. I assumed that it was just going to, you know, just be there. If people needed information, I could lead them to that page. But it just goes to show that because we don't have this information in our schools, in our communities, or if we do, it's stigmatized or it's incorrect. People are craving for accurate, inclusive, non-stigmatizing sex ed information. Because at the end of the day, one, it's sex. People love talking about sex. Two, because people also enjoy it. And at the crux of everything, it is pleasure. And if we don't have the element of education and the element of safety, we're not going to be able to have these conversations without that taboo. And that's kind of what I wanted to create. I wanted to create that safe space for us to talk about these things in a very healthy, fun way as well. As an educator and a fan of the topic and an expert of the topic and all the layers of that, are there any trends going on right now with sexual wellness and in that space that are particularly excited for you? And are there any trends that you foresee that you would like to maybe even start? So the self-pleasure slash masturbation trend is usually the main one because it's a conversation that a lot of people shy away from. And it's also a conversation that kind of creates a foundation of how to get to know your body and how to understand pleasure. That's the main trend always in the sex ed world. And then Second is a lot of white sex educators, people who have not really been at the intersection of oppression. A lot of them are starting to have these conversations with their own communities and lifting up sex educators of color and being able to teach their, being able to, because everyone kind of has their specialty, right? And so them being able to lead that work from those specific lens are also things that are happening right now. Which is great finally getting to a place where we're discussing the intersections of race, gender, and class. Because the sex ed world was also mainly led by straight white women. And essentially now, with everything happening in, in the world, sex educators of color being lifted up, which is great. So I would say those two things are the main trends. And the trend that I would want to see happen more, I would say, is adding abortion to sex ed, because essentially a sex ed, yeah, we talk about birth control, we talk about how to put on a condom on a banana and all of those things. But 
abortion does tend to be like just the quick topic that we'll spend a day on. And it kind of has a lot of layers too, like everything, but it deals with many concepts that we were talking about earlier. It deals with um, reproductive justice, which also deals with white supremacy, capitalism, classism, and all of those things that a lot of young people are dealing with. So you are right on the edge of it all. Like you're, mm-hmm. you're already at the front. What's next for you? What's next for, for Irma? Well, I am currently taking it day by day because of everything that's happening as we've spoken about. So what's next at the moment is dealing with the SCOTUS decision that's going to be popping up soon, whether it's this week or next week, but depends on what happens there. That's going to let me know where my work is going, because if people are not going to be able to get abortions in Texas anymore, essentially the ruling that the Supreme Court passes in the next two weeks, unfortunately, Texas has a trigger law, which means that if Roe versus Wade is overturned at the Supreme Court level, then Texas immediately as of that day has to stop performing abortions. No abortions are going to be allowed essentially to happen in Texas. And so everyone's going to have to fly out. There's not going to even be a six week marker anymore. And it doesn't matter if you're still under six weeks, you're not going to be able to get an abortion. And that essentially is going to change the way that I do my job. And it's also going to change the way that I have to talk to people. Um, it's, it's going to create, excuse my language, a shit show. So kind of preparing for that. And I've even heard that there's some zombie law underneath Roe versus Wade that says that if you aid in someone getting an abortion, you can have legal actions brought against you, whether that's educating them, transporting them. Like, what if a dad takes his daughter out of state to get an abortion? He could be tried for. There, there is a criminal piece to that unlike SBH, which was only that you would get sued if someone wanted to sue you versus this original law that was in effect before Roe v. Wade passed. It basically criminally charged anyone that aided an abortion. So it is going to create a lot of issues because if parents do want to take their children out of state, they should be allowed to do so. So like I said earlier, a lot of these things are going to get confusing and it's going to be a shit show. (laughs) I'm glad we have people like you to lead the way in that. It's not going to be pretty, but gosh, we need heroes and fighters on the front of those lines to be able to do it. Okay. That was heavy. Yeah. A A few brand questions. Like since we're first and foremost an advertising agency and we always want to know more, are there any organizations or brands that you would love to partner with that support the kind of causes that you care about? Personally, I actually don't think about that as much as your typical influencer would. Because one, my the way I navigate this world is not with an influencer mind, but nothing against influencers or anything like that. I am I'm not... Because originally I didn't start off that way. Like I said earlier, I was just trying to give the, put the information out there. And it wasn't until later that brands and companies were reaching out to me to review their sex toys and stuff like that. And so I, with the research 
that I would do, I would then tell them yes or no, depending on if my values aligned. So most of the brands that I worked with, not all, but most of them did have a component of like racial justice or something in that realm. So at the moment, um, I'm, I actually still want to work with Bayesca, which was a brand that Cardi B worked with at one point for her birthday party. And they do some really fun sex toys that I want to be able to have fun with and work with them at one point. At the moment, that's the only brand that I have at the top of my mind. But essentially, I don't navigate the world that way. I navigate more in an educational type of way, if that makes sense. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, there's some, there's purpose to what you do, right? And you're very clear about what your purpose is. And there's a lot of nobility in that. If you could, then in that case, if you could say one thing to brands that are out there about better communicating, supporting, and working with people that have a similar identity as you, what would that be? Essentially being honest about their values and because of current like state of the world and in this economy, paying the people that they work with. I can't tell you how many times companies and brands have reached out to me and wanted to work with me. And it depends, I guess, on the brand. If it's a very meaningful situation or campaign, then I'll do it for free. But a lot of the times, especially creators of color, do not have the resources to work for free. So mainly paying the people they want to work with, especially if they are folks who are of color. Again, that is in and of itself reparations. So if anything, it would be that. I love that. That's so smart. (laughs) Who are you following right now? Who do you follow on social media? Oh, so many people. (laughs) But um, I would love to shout out Talk Taboo on Instagram and Froetic Sexology. They're both Black sex educators and we worked together in the past and they are I would say Afroetic Sexology is specifically dedicated to sex therapy for Black women. And Talk Taboo is geared to everyone, but it's founded by a Black woman. And their platform is essentially creating a sex ed resource website and blog with videos and podcasts and just all of these fun, different methods of bringing the information to people. Versus me, it's just more so like quick posts, quick static posts on Instagram so that people can read something fast, get that information, and then like, you know, keep it with them. (laughs) That sounds great. So finally, where can we follow Irma Garcia? I am on Instagram at Sex Ed with Irma and on Twitter at Dirty South Sex Ed. Amazing. Everyone's got to check you out. You are just so smart and so charismatic, and I am so glad that you are out there doing the work. God knows we need it right now. Thank you for joining us on The Follow. You have been such a pleasure to talk to. It's been wonderful. Right back at you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Irma, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, 
please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so that other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, take care.